When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, welcome back to the Legend of Zelda Lorecast. I'm your host, Aaron, and joining me, as always, is my fellow host, Ariel. Hello. In today's episode, we're going to go more in depth with the races of the Legend of Zelda series, at least the more prominent ones right now. But before we get into those remaining races that we said we were going to do last episode, I did want to add a little caveat to the previous episode that I forgot to mention. So... We were talking about the Zoras, and I failed to mention where it is theorized that they came from or they descended from from the Skyward Sword timeline. So where it is theorized that they came from was none other than the Perella, which if you play the Skyward Sword series, you know exactly who these are. These are the water dragon kind of look like seahorse jellyfish cross creatures that dwell in the water within the water dragons region. So the reason it is theorized that they descended from them is because in the legend of Zelda encyclopedia, it there's a brief discussion of when the development team was asked to create something more almost prehistoric to represent the Zora race. They came up with all kinds of crazy designs and the, the final approval team was like, no, no. Well, one of the designs was after they were told no was the Perella. And they were like, okay, we like that race, but there's been no actual lore tie into those. Um, but it would it, honestly, it would be safe to say that they would fit the kind of description um, of the prehistoric versions of the Zora and, you know, evolution did its thing. So that, that's the one caveat I wanted to add about the Zoras. <laughs> Every time you say that, I think caviar. Like when you say caveat, <laughs> it's caviar. Seems fitting for uh, Zora. It does. It does. So with all that being said and out of the way, let's dive into our first race that we're going to talk about today. And that is the Sheikah. So the Sheikah are pretty similar to the Hillians. And they're, they share a lot of similar features. So the pointed ears, the humanoid appearance, those are the things they share. Now, the difference between them, though, is physically, most of the Sheikah have red eyes. And non-physically, just like the Hillians that have magical capabilities, at first, 
so do the Sheikah. However, the Sheikah deal and more what's commonly referred to as shadow magic or dark magic. Now, this can be a little intimidating until you learn that the Sheikah are the appointed guardians of the goddess, Hylia. So this has been since the dawn of time, essentially. The Sheikah have been appointed to be the guardian of Hylia. It changes, however, when Hylia decides to reincarnate herself. Their duty is no longer to protect Hylia herself, so much so as it is to re- protect the reincarnation and the royal family when the events of Skyward Sword take place and Skyloft descends. So one of the most prominent Sheikah in the series is Empa. Uh, Empas are blonde haired ninja gal who is just a total, total awesome chick. She uses different sorts of dark magic throughout the series. And we see this through either shields or projectiles or even the grand disappearing act. And even at one point in the series, she teaches Zelda all of this, where Zelda becomes chic. So some key things to know about the Sheikah. There is a point in history where the Sheikah divide from their original taskings. So we talked about how they were appointed the guardians of the royal family and Hylia herself. When the Skylothians descended and became the Hylians, the Sheikah were some of the Sheikah were upset that they were just expected to give up the land that they've been basically taking care of all this time, which created a divide and ended in result of a war. And the Sheikah took a huge loss to their numbers. And we'll get into that war later on, but it's key to note because during this war, they developed some very dark, nasty habits, which is anybody who had betrayed the royal family, they tortured and they did away with in a specific site, which we see in the Ocarina of Time series as the Shadow Temple. Now, the Shadow Temple is a place that we do not talk about as the royal family. In fact, it is strictly forbidden to talk about it. But here on the podcast, of course, we got to talk about it. (laughs) Of course. Of course. So a couple other key things to note about the Sheikah. Um, And remember, we're not going super, super in depth with them right now because we will go further in depth with the Sheikah and the events with the Sheikah later. They are the ones who actually establish one of the most prominent towns in the series, which is Kakariko Village. Uh, Kakariko Village was first featured in uh, Ocarina of Time, if we're going by timeline here, and has appeared a couple times throughout the series. It's also important to note that the first time we actually get to see the Sheikah as a clan is in Breath of the Wild, because before this, the only Sheikah we've ever seen is Empa herself. Another thing to note about the Sheikah is the fact that they have longer life expectancies than the Hylian counterparts. And this is primarily because of the magic that they still possess to this day. Where the Hylian's magic has kind of faded 
over time, the Sheikahs is stronger than ever right now. And we even see that in Breath of the Wild. Well, even in the Breath of the Wild, the monks in there live for thousands of years. Oh, yeah. And it's, well, it's because of their magic, like Mm -hmm. you said, but it will fade when their duties complete. Yeah, and we see that when we complete the trials, which is one of my favorite parts of Breath of the Wild, to be honest. (laughs) I'm guilty of watching them fade away because it's just such a cool moment. You know, when you take it and you put it and you humanize it, these people have been waiting for years for you to come and take claim to what you are essentially your power and once they do that they're finally able to rest in peace and it's incredible Mm -hmm. like another interesting thing I found on the Sheikah is like they were kept a secret only those with connections to the royal family knew that they were even a thing yes 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 the we witnessed this mostly in Ocarina Time when Impa comes to basically whisk Zelda away and everybody else is like who is that and Zelda's like nah nah I know I know her it's cool like this is the first time we actually get to bear witness to the fact that the Sheikah are a secret society and we see it a couple more times throughout the game series as well and Breath of the Wild that that's a big key point of in Breath of the Wild where they've established basically a society is because they don't feel the need to be in secret anymore. No more ninjas. (laughs) Oh, they're very much still ninja. Oh, yeah, they are. (laughs) So with all that being said, Ariel, I think you had one more thing for us with the Sheikah. I did. Something I found very interesting. So the Sheikah eye symbol. Yes. So you see it throughout the series on a little bit of everywhere and you first see it in Ocarina of Time mm-hmm. and then you see it throughout in different gossip stones and on temples and stuff like that and what I really found interesting why I'm bringing this up is the representation of the eye okay so the open eye represents the search for truth and the teardrop represents how the Sheikah live in the shadow of the royal family and will go to any lengths to achieve a goal and it's sad to I don't know I got to thinking a teardrop representing that seems to me more like sadness than happiness in that yeah and that goes back to you got to think when the Hillians descended, they were basically expected to give up all the land and everything that they've built and taken care of to these sky people that put zero work in essentially. And though majority of the tribe was like, Nope, that's what we expected. That's why we did it. We took care of it for them per the orders of Hillia. A lot of them rebelled against this and Though they were like, yeah, that's our duty. Even the ones who didn't rebel were still saddened by the fact that they had built such a wonderful life for themselves and they just had to give it all up. 
I know, that's... And then the last thing I have is just that the crest is to ward off evil. Yes, yeah. And that kind of comes from like... Well, it really comes from a lot of cultures because there's, each culture has their own way of warding off evil spirits. Um, but a lot of this tribe is influenced by what it appears from Buddhist monk. Yeah. So you brought up the eye and that made me think there's a couple things I really should talk about right now. And that is some of the tools that we get in the Legend of Zelda series that are heavily influenced and created by none other than the Sheikah. And it really drives home what they were all about. So the first item that I want to bring up is featured in a lot of the 3D Zelda games, which is the Mask of Truth. Now, when we use it, it allows us to talk to Gossip Stones and, you know, and sometimes it allows us to, you know, flush out truths and speak to animals. And it's a very helpful mask. However, you have to think of the implications that the Sheikah would use that mask for. And the first one that comes to mind is none other than mind reading. The capability to talk to animals. I mean, you could capture somebody as a Sheikah, bring them to the Shadow Temple, and then go, let's say they had livestock. You could go talk to the livestock to figure out what their big plan was to try to somehow hurt the royal family. It's crazy. That is pretty cool item. <laughs> and the lens of truth is the next item I want to talk about. And the, in the games, the lens of truth allows us to see things that are invisible or, you know, not typically visible to the naked eye. But again, the lens of truth is an item that the Sheikah would probably use to see sh- the usage of shadow magic or other forms of magic. And it's incredible tool for combat, essentially. Yeah. And I think it's important to note with the mention of these items that their duties didn't just extend to protecting the royal family. Their duties were to basically do everything in the shadows for the royal family. So we're talking covert op missions. We're talking potential assassination missions. I mean, we're talking some of the dark, dirty stuff that the royal family does not want to be involved in at all. And they don't even want the knowledge of. (laughs) You know, they don't want to get their hands dirty. Exactly. And so they make someone else do it. Essentially. And when we put it that way, we kind of make the royal family sound like a bunch of jerks. When in reality, the system is set up so that the royal family can stay within the light. Because remember, the usage of the Triforce can only be used by somebody who essentially embodies the three. So power, wisdom and courage. If you're doing things in the dark, you're not really demonstrating wisdom. Because wisdom is the knowledge of, you know, everything or the knowledge of what is right. And, you know, wisdom can be argued both ways. But in the Legend of Zelda series, it's mostly demonstrated as the one who is extremely wise and always makes the righteous choice and, you know, so on and so forth, which is why Zelda is our always our wisdom. And... If you're doing things in the dark, you're not really demonstrating courage either, are you? Yes. So, you know, that's kind of why the royal family needed needed to have the Sheikah to do the dark dwellings. 
And that is also why the Sheikah had to stay in hiding and secret from the world. Because if people knew about the Sheikah, they would automatically tie it to the royal family and the royal family would basically be painted as mobsters. (laughs) I mean, they kind of are. So the last thing I want to make note here is the Sheikah numbers. Okay, because in Breath of the Wild, we see there's not very many Sheikah living in the village, but there's tons of Sheikah at shrines. So it's important to know what happened to the Sheikah. So during the time of peace in Hyrule, the Sheikah weren't really necessary. So what started to happen to the Sheikah tribe was some of them would kind of carry off and find their own way in life. And this led to the Sheikah numbers dwindling but not outright disappearing because though some of the Sheikah would abandon their task in the pursuit of their own happiness, there were other Sheikahs that knew that duty came first. And though it was a time of peace now, it wouldn't be a time of peace forever. And this came back to the fact that Sheikah pass down legends. That's the most important aspect of the Sheikah is that they are the carrier of legends. And they knew from the beginning what took place in the events of the end of Skyward Sword. We can account that to Impa. What we can assume is during the time where Impa went back in time, she probably shared it with the rest of the Sheikah tribe that Demise had basically cursed the world with his hatred and the Sheikah need to be on guard at all times. So that's a whole slew on the Sheikah, and there's still so much to cover with them, which we'll cover in a more in-depth dive later. But for now, let's carry on over to our Kokiri. So the Kokiri are one of my favorite races, and that is because of their history. They're super adorable. They are, honestly, and they only get more adorable when they evolve. And we'll talk about that in a second too. So the history of them is pretty cool because the Kokiri are actually Hillians. And basically when the Hillians were developing their societies and learning to live less off the land and more uh, societal, the there were some Hillians that were like, eh, not for us. And they decided to take an alternate approach, which is live more off the land. When they decide this, they go to what we now know as the Lost Woods. And there they find the Deku Tree. Now, the great Deku Tree tells them, as long as you live in these woods, you will never age and you will never die. But if you leave these woods, you will die. Now, we know that that's not the case because they do eventually leave the woods and they don't just outright die. But what he was referring to, the great Deku tree was referring to was not that they will die immediately, but that they will age. They will begin the aging process again. So during the Ocarina of time, we know that our boy Link is basically raised in one of the Kokiri villages or the Kokiri village. As far as we know, This happens because during the Great War, or one of the Great Wars, Link's mother unfortunately passes. 
and leaves Link to the Deku Tree and the great Deku Tree knows that this child has a grand fate. So he decides to raise him as a Kokiri. So a couple things to note here with the Kokiri. Other than they basically look like children aliens, they also get a very important thing when they reach a certain age, which is a fairy. And the fairy not only acts as their guide and their aid, but also acts as a true testament that you are a Kokiri. Only Kokiri children can get a fairy, essentially. One of the sad parts about this, though, is that the fairy's tasking is to protect and teach the children, and their life expectancy is only as long as it takes to complete their task. And this is sad because at the end of the Ocarina of Time, Navi, our beloved annoying fairy, leaves. And we'll talk more about fairies when we get to it in the series, but it's safe to assume that Navi knew that that was the end of her existence. And she didn't want to bring Link down in his hour of triumph. They know how to get you right in the feels. They do. And this is why I said I cry at the end of every Legend of Zelda game because they get you right in the feels. Um, which even hurts even more when they made the sequel Majora's Mask and the whole purpose of your travels was to find Navi. So, ouch. But let's get back to the Kokiri. <laughs> so the Kokiri substance is actually from the land itself which not surprised since that's the way the people that originally moved there wanted to do we know this because number one there's no livestock visible in the kokiri village number two when link first wakes up there's a lots of fruits and veggies on his table and it's kind of demonstrated that throughout the rest of the Kokiri children's homes as well. There's lots of fruits and veg, you know, there's, there's fields that you can see that they either have just recently planted or are harvesting. It's very visible throughout the Kokiri village. Another thing to note is they don't really have any sort of arms to protect themselves other than the Kokiri sword which is kept inside of this, you can say elaborate for a child, kind of trap system, which it's really just a boulder that runs around in a square and you have to crawl through a tiny little hole. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the only weapon we see in the entire village. Even Mido, who keeps you from going to see the Deku tree at the very beginning, because you don't have a sword and a shield, doesn't carry a sword or a shield. So, it's safe to say that they basically live as children. And we also see that through their cheerfulness and their happy dispositions and their willingness to just run around and play. And because of that, the Hillians often refer to them as the forest fairies, even though they don't actually make contact with the outside world. And they have their own fairies. <laughs> Yeah, it's important to note that Kokiri do not have contact or much contact with the outside world. They pretty much stay to themselves just outside the Lost Woods. 
So all of this being said about the Kokiri, there's one important event that takes place that changes everything, which is the Deku tree dies and the forest sage is resurrected. When this happens, there is a Deku seed that falls and a new Deku tree is born. Because the forest sage is alive again and the Deku tree is reborn, the Kokiri now have the ability to freely leave the forest and they will still not age, which is incredible for them because now they can actually go out into the outside world and explore. However, this all changes when the events of Wind Waker take place. Because the world is flooded, that too means that their forest was flooded. And they had no choice but to evolve. And what they evolved into was the Koroks, or the Forest Guardians. It is said that the Kokiri evolved, gaining the ability to fly above the waves to different islands. And this is a direct quote from the Legend of Zelda Encyclopedia. So that is where our Koroks have come from. (laughs) There's not a whole lot to be said about the Koroks other than, you know, they they're made of light wood. They jingle when they walk. You know, they're the cute little tiny trees that walk around with leaf masks for faces. But there is one important thing that they do now in our most current timelines. They will gather once a year at their home in the Forest Haven to gather seeds from the Great Deku Tree, which they will use to grow forests all over the islands, all over the world. So they're basically the world's method of repopulating all these islands with new plant life. So not only did the Kokiri evolve to survive, but they evolved to make sure that the forest also survived during this great flood, which is incredible to think about. They start off as little kids and then they evolved into these things that carry seeds. Oh, so they're kind of like Totoro. Yeah, they are. They're cute little they're basically wooden tiny Totoros. Aww. It's <laughs> adorable. Well, I have one thing that really doesn't have much to do with the Kokiri, but I thought it was kind of funny. So, in Ocarina of Time, the Kokiri are not visible for more than 15 steps away. And this is because Nintendo 64's limitations. <laughs> it was difficult to display the kokiri and the structures in the forest all at once so each kokiri was paired with a fairy to help locate them oh now that's really cool (laughs) so when yeah when link approaches them the owners appear so that's when you get to see the yeah i just thought that was kind of cool and funny you know what? I love the fact that they add the little lore bits with the fairies and the Kokiri to make it seem like that's the way it's supposed to be. And they <laughs> made them seem extremely magical as a race. So that's why they don't appear until you come up to them real close. When in reality, it was just because the Nintendo 64 couldn't process all the visuals at once. Yep. <laughs> yep. Way to go, Nintendo. You did it again. Yeah, that's why I wanted to just wanted to put that in there. <laughs> 
Well, with all that being said, let's go to our mid-break. Well, here we are in the middle of the show. Usually we'll thank our patrons here, but Patreon is being complicated and I haven't gotten it up yet. (laughs) But we'll get it up. Don't worry. We'll get it up before the end of the month, I promise. Um, But moving on from that, I have some news and you have some merch, I believe. Yep. Would you like to go first with your merch? Sure. So what I brought is an Ocarina of Time cube diorama. Ooh, do tell. Oh, it's pretty cool. It's like a shadow box type diorama. So we got Link and Zelda where they first meet at the castle. Oh, in the uh, like the central ground or the garden area. Yeah. Ooh. So this is on Etsy and it runs for $70.20. But it is really, really cool. And it's handcrafted too, which is why it's so expensive. Yes. It's, I, I think it's worth a $70.20. I do too. It's 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 very 2D, 3D. Like it's got that 2D look with that 3D kind of pop effect to it. It's pretty cool looking. Yeah, and I'll put the link in the show notes. Get it? Link in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> Bad dad joke. <laughs> Well, with the bad dad joke out of the way, I have some news from Nintendo Life. So I read an article. Like you always do. Like I always do. So on NintendoLife.com, there was an article about Majora's Mask in 64 version coming to the Nintendo Switch. Now, if you're following Legend of Zelda news, you already knew this. But what you probably didn't know, unless you are on the Nintendo Twitter is that it's coming to the Switch February 25th. So next week. Woot woot. Woot woot. So you can relive all that wonderful Majora's Mask magic in the three days that you get to have fun in there before the moon collapses on you next week. Yikes. (laughs) So with all that being said... I think it's time to dive into the end of the episode and start talking about the Rito and the Deku Scrubs. And we're back from the mid-break. So, let's dive into the Rito. So, the Rito first arrived in the Legend of Zelda series in the events of Wind Waker. And this was because the Zora could not inhabit the waters because they were not natural waters, which we discussed in last episode. However, to combat this, the Zora evolved into the Rito. The first forms of evolution from Zora to Rito, they didn't really have wings. And this is demonstrated from the, not only the possession of the grappling hook as a relic, but also from their knowledge of the grappling hook. So it's safe to assume that they originally were using the grappling hook for travel and then slowly but surely began to evolve to skyward beings after this. So in Wind Waker, the Rito do not 
have wings at birth. They first get their wings when they come of age and they travel to Valu, which is their deity, to acquire scale in which they use to get their wings. And we see this in one of the missions where we have to basically carry a Rito, who shall rename Nameless, all the way to the top and then throw her. Because <laughs> she's scared to fly. Um, we have to aid her in her quest to get the scale and to get her wings. And yeah, so we get this, we get this whole line of this is where we get our wings from and the Wind Waker through that mission. A couple other things to note with the Rito is they in the Wind Waker have more humanoid appearances. Though their skin is a little differently colored, their physical attributes are very much that of a human except for the beak. So this the color of their skin and the beak that they have is pretty much the only distinguishing features they have compared to any other Helion or human. Another thing to make note with the Wind Waker Rito is they don't have their wings out even after they get their wings. There's only a few select people in that series that we do see their wings are out constantly. Otherwise, their wings kind of act like sleeves and they just kind of wrap around their arms and they even look like sleeves. So, yeah, that's our Wind Waker Rito. Which I think look pretty cool. They do look pretty cool. So... Arito go through a drastic change in Breath of the Wild. Instead of appearing human-like, they begin to take on more of an avian appearance. In fact, so much so that they just look like straight birds. Birds that look like birds. (laughs) It's important to note here that in the Breath of the Wild series, they don't really have a patron deity. They, however, do have somebody who they pretty much insist from birth that the male Rito follow and emulate themselves after, which is none other than the champion Regalia. And this is because they cannot, they really can't fly. They cannot create their own updrafts except for the champion Regalia. He is the only Rito in the entire Breath of the Wild that can actually actually create flight. The rest of them pretty much just dive off of high cliffs and just glide everywhere. Kind of like the Avatar. Yeah, exactly like that. So, all of this being said, I know you have a couple key features that you want to talk about with the Rito specifically. I do. So, they have poor night vision. Mm-hmm. And they also struggle to see in dimly lit areas. So their eyesight isn't, you know. Isn't very good. Nah, nah. <laughs> uh, but their uh, feathers, they retain heat. So that helps in high altitudes and like colder climates. And their feathers molt once per year. Okay. Yeah, so they... For the young Ritos, they only molt once per year. Now, it is important to note that the Hillians will take the molted feathers and weave it into their clothing and bedding. Yeah, they definitely 
made an industry for their feathers. <laughs> Leave it to the Hillians to take things from other people, too. Of course. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not really hating on them, but the more you know, the more it's like, nah. Yeah, they're kind of greedy. Yeah. So that's what I have on that. But I have one more other interesting thing. Okay. So I just wanted to mention the official Rito Tribe Birdman contest. Oh? Yes. So <laughs> it's a mini game in Wind Waker. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it's hosted by Willie and Obley, two human brothers who dress up as Rito. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So this this contest is located on the flight control platform east of Dragon Roost Island. And for Link to participate or you to participate, you have to speak to Willie and pay a fee of 10 rupees. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's funny. I I think it's funny. Honestly, that mini game was one of my favorites from the Wind Waker series. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I won't get into too much into yeah. it. But we won't I ruin just, it, but... I <laughs> I don't know. I just found it funny that two humans would go and make a contest, dress up as Rito, and pretend to be them. <laughs> Everybody wants to be the Rito. Right. <laughs> so the last things I have to add to this is we're going back to the champion regalia. Because it's not just the fact that he's one of the only Rito that can essentially fly on his own, but it's also his expertise with a bow and combat. This is why the Rito tribe basically tell their boys to emulate themselves after Regalia, because he is basically a expert aviationist and combatist. Well, with a name like Regalia, you kind of have to. Oh, yeah. And as much as Regalia is very much the bully protagonist in The Breath of the Wild, you can't help but love him just a little bit. Because though he's a stubborn butt, he is quite awesome and does have a lot to offer to the Champions crew. Oh, definitely. So... With our Ritos out of the way, it's time to talk our last species. Oh, boy. And I I want to make note before we get into these guys that there are several other species within the series, and we will talk about them when they come up. But these are the species that have some the most history behind them and the most relevance throughout the series because they do appear multiple times throughout the series. We have some species like the Uka and the Minish. These species really only appear in the one game. Hopefully that can be changed in the future because these are both very interesting species. But for now, we'll talk about them when they get when we get to their particular topics or games. Yeah. So the last species I want to hone in on here in this episode is none other than the Deku Scrubs. Or the mischievous little buttheads. <laughs> so the Deku Scrubs make trouble in the forests and swamps and pretty much anywhere that is green in Hyrule. 
even in Termina. So we can't get away from these guys. However, in Termina, and we'll talk about that in a second, they're a little different. But unlike the Kokiri, they are a monstrous bunch. They are literally out to cause all the problems that they can. And they're, they're like you said, they're just butts. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So the Dekus are basically, their bodies are made of nuts and their hair or heads are made of leaves. And they have glowing eyes and round mouths, much like a cannon, essentially. And they have these tiny little legs that branch out into these fat feet. <laughs> uh, they are extremely wary of other beings, which we do see in the game series. Because when you approach them, they will immediately hide within their flowers or brush, whatever they're hiding in. They'll just duck down and you can't hit them. You got to get them out of there before you can hit them. They sure love to shoot their nuts at you. Yes. I was actually going to get into that. They spit Deku seeds at anyone who approaches them. So that goes into the whole, we're going to shoot you and then we're going to hide because you got too close. And then we're going to jump out when you get far enough away and we're going to shoot. They're very annoying. <laughs> Though they are mostly hostile, there has been known to be some that will trade with Helians. And the disposition of the Deku Scrubs differ greatly based on the type of tree they are born from. So, that being said, it's important to note that the Deku Scrubs that we deal with in Termina are born from basically the swamp, which isn't necessarily a hostile environment. Though it is very recluse, it's not hostile. This is why when you go to deal with the Deku Scrubs and you take off your Deku mask, they're kind of like, you can get out of here now. Like, they won't attack you, but they also won't let you into their stronghold. They only deal with Deku. But we also have some, which is our traveling merchants, that will fly around, land in the flower, and try to sell you stuff. Because they want to make a living. I also want to note that when you harm them, they start pleading for mercy. They do. <laughs> like little babies. They're very timid and scared. They're very much like, I'm going to bully you from a distance, but if you get too close or you hurt me in any way, I'm, I don't want to mess with you anymore. Like, <laughs> you're way bigger than I thought. But the reason I wanted to bring them up is because they are in almost every single game we ever play in the Legend of Zelda series. Yep. They first started off as our enemies, and the first real time we get to deal with them as a friendly, I believe, is in the Majora's Mask series. And this is where we have to go and help them help the princess of the tribe, you know, free her monkey friend. And we also have to do dealings with them because they're merchants and, you know, mini games. And it's safe to say that the Deku that are born in Hyrule are born from more hostile plant life. And the ones in Termina are born from, you know, more friendly terrain. Or more domicile terrain. 
I'm just not a fan of them. <laughs> Regardless. But I'm they're just, so tiny and cute. No, they're <laughs> annoying little bullies. So I think that's all the time we have for this episode. Is there anything else you wanted to add, Ariel? I do. Okay. Just a fun little thing. So, because this game just comes up a lot in Ocarina of Time. And that's where they first appeared in. Mm -hmm. So, a group of three Deku scrubs appear prior to Goma's room, guarding the doorway. And unlike the other Deku scrubs, they will be stunned when hit. Mm -hmm. But they won't give up unless you hit them or you defeat them in the correct order. Oh, yes. I remember this mini game. It was such a pain in the butt. I know. And the only reason I'm bringing it up is because of that. So, <laughs> like, for anybody out there, the order or the secret is revealed by Deku Scrub defeated previously in the dungeon. And you can remember this by using the phrase 23 is number one. 23 is number one. Yes. So it's two, three, one. It is. And when you beat them, they reveal to you the strategy to use in order to defeat Goma. Yeah. So, but in the Master Quest version, mm -hmm. the Deku scrub that reveals the correct order is replaced by a mad scrub. Oh. And the order to defeat the three Deku scrubs is changed to 312. And you can only really discover that by trial and error. Oh, see, I haven't played all the way through Master Quest, so I didn't get to that part. Well, when you do, you know the order now. <laughs> Three, one, two. Well, I think that's all the time we have for the third episode of The Legend of Zelda Lorecast. I did want to give another big shout out to STL Ocarina. I just recently tuned in to one of their live concerts they do on their YouTube channel, which is the STL Ocarina YouTube, and it was fantastic. Uh, yeah, they did Totoro. They did Totoro. They did uh, songs from the Legend of Zelda series. They even did some from the Final Fantasy series. Um, it was it was beautifully done. Uh, fantastic crowd. It was it was just. I can't say enough nice things about it. So if you get a chance next Thursday, they're going to be putting on another concert on that YouTube channel. And this one is going to be Legend of Zelda songs. So you get a chance next Thursday, jump on. Uh, we will post as soon as we know more, we'll post the time on our Twitter. So check it out, go in there, show them some love. They beautiful ocarina music. Um, yeah, I can't say enough nice things about them. <laughs> They're pretty awesome. I'm pretty so awesome. glad we found their ocarinas. <laughs> You're welcome. But with all that being said, I think next time we're going to talk about the Wars of Hyrule. Yeah. So thank you all for listening. Tune in next week. Bye. Thank you all for listening to The Legend of Zelda Lorecast tonight. We hope you enjoyed yourselves. If you did, tell a friend. Leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can chat with us all things Legend of Zelda on the Robots Radio Discord. Or you can get hold of us on our Twitter, at LOZLorecast. Intro and outro are done by Bentonal Landscape. Links are in the show notes below. 
Until next time, dear listener, it's dangerous to go alone. Take this.